Thanks to Audible for supporting Industry Focus. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, October 2nd, and we're talking about the Fed. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, filling in for Gabby LaPera this week, and I'm joined in the studio by John Maxfield. John, great to have you back on the show. Michael Douglas, it's such a pleasure to be on the show with you. It's been a long time, my friend, a uh, long time. It has. Long-time Industry Focus listeners will remember I used to run the financial show. It must have been, oh what, two and a half years ago, three years ago, something like that? Uh, yeah, it feels like it feels like an enormous amount of time ago. But <laughs> I, I, I want to say something about you, Michael Douglas, to our listeners, okay? Oh, well, so here, I, here goes. When did, join, when did you join The Motley Fool? Uh, it would have been uh, January 2014. January 2014. Okay, so I joined a few years before that. So I've been able to see Michael Douglas's full ascent at The Motley Fool. And let me tell you something to you listeners. Michael Douglas is one of those extraordinarily talented individuals. I'm not saying this just because we, we work together and all this stuff, but it's been so much fun watching you, Michael, not only because you've gotten in such a short amount of time, right? You've gotten good at like the whole industry focus thing and all that kind of stuff and the, the editorial aspects of managing, but also you've become such a good writer. And to see all of those things progress at such a quick pace has been, it's been a fun thing to watch. Well, thank you, John. Uh, listeners will will note that I'm blushing. So that was not planned. Thank you, John. That's very kind that. of you. Yeah, it's okay. I'll send you a picture later. Yeah. <laughs> Another picture? Oh, God, you're sending me them all the time. Right. <laughs> okay, so, so a couple of important things to note with the Fed. The first is that the hunt for a new Fed chair has begun. And there are really, in a lot of ways, kind of two big opposing camps here um, that... Uh, President Trump may choose to favor one or the other. We kind of wanted to talk through those, and then we'll talk through kind of regulatory stuff. But but first, let's talk about the two major different sort of ideas as to how the Fed should function. Yeah, so when you think about the Federal Reserve, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people obviously know what the Federal Reserve is, but you know, when you switch out Federal Reserve governors, it, 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 you really have to kind of know quite a bit about like how it operates and how the financial system works to really appreciate how big of a decision this can be at certain juncture points in time. And we're at one of those junctures right now. And there's, you know, President Trump is, is, is you know, Janet Yellen's term is coming to an end. And President Trump is trying to figure out, you know, who the next person is that should replace her. And he's, he has a choice between really two starkly different ideological camps. On one side, you have a guy like Jerome Powell, who's already a member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, very respected man. But he would, all the indications that we have thus far, imply that he will continue the current course that Janet Yellen has set. And what that means is continue to gradually increase interest rates as the data from the economy comes in and supports that. And the second is to continue to play a really heavy regulatory, have a really heavy, heavy regulatory presence in the bank industry. And of course, um, this is all the result of Dodd-Frank and the reaction to the financial crisis. So that's on one side. The and other on the side, other. There's another side. Right. And the other side is represented by a guy named Kevin Warsh. Now, Kevin Warsh was, he's also a former Fed governor. Well, I guess also, I mean, He's a, he was a Fed governor from, I think it was 2006 to 2011, whereas Jerome Powell is still a Fed governor. And Kevin Warsh is more of the ilk that he thinks 
you should come in and as opposed to kind of gradually um, continue the current course, that you should dramatically reform the Federal Reserve from a variety of different angles. But one of the things that he has argued in the past in a, New York, in a Wall Street Journal op-ed piece is that the Federal Reserve has become too confident and too reliant on its data analytics and data analysis and you're, because you're analyzing things that are so difficult to predict in the future. So you're relying on you know, these really precise models about really imprecise things. And that's that kind of over, an overarching uh, belief of his. And, and that would impact the rate at which you increase interest rates. Because if you're looking at the data really closely to determine if and when to raise interest rates, then that's gonna dictate that whole thing. But if you don't think the data should be given as much respect, then you're going to be making that decision kind of outside of that channel. And then on the regulatory front, Warsh, and this won't surprise anybody kind of given um, kind of the underlying currents in, of the current administration in terms of how they feel towards uh, regulations. He thinks that uh, the Federal Reserve has become much too robust of a regulatory agency and thinks that it needs to step back from that role uh, in the bank industry. Yeah, and so what we what we'd be seeing here is essentially a stay the course versus a dramatic change. Certainly, with this administration, it's it's hard to predict which way they will go. That said, the general sense of things has been um, that they've wanted to pretty radically change things and, and particularly to shrink the role of government where possible. So you could certainly see uh, a strong argument for them going with Warsh ultimately. And there are interviews going on right now. President Trump has not announced a pick. Of course, with our kind of luck, he'll announce a pick before we go live, but uh, before this posts on iTunes. But uh, you know, such is life. Well, and here's another point about Warsh that I think uh, is fair to say is a very relevant point in terms of whether he'll be selected or not. Uh, Warsh is married to the granddaughter of the Estee Lauder, of Estee Lauder, right? So the the, the makeup uh, empire, and his father-in-law is friends with Donald Trump. And his father-in-law has been personally, this is what the reports are, has been personally lobbying the White House to pick Kevin Warsh. So you also have that element at play. So I'm with you, Michael. You know, If I were forced to bet on this, uh, who is going to be the person that was selected, I would probably bet on Warsh. Yeah. Fortunately, we don't have to make bets, <laughs> um, which is all for the best because uh, my ability to predict the future is pretty poor. But it'll <laughs> certainly be, this is certainly going to be a, a big this is going to have a big impact on the stock market, not just in the short term, but in the long term, and also uh, in the Fed's role in the economy. And so, this is definitely a big story and one we're going to want to watch. Now, with that in mind, let's turn to talking about kind of the big issues at play in the Fed right now. And John, you, you and I talked before the uh, the show and sort of honed in on four major ones, the first one being the Volcker Rule. So, so let's talk through the Volcker Rule, first off, kind of what it is, and then why it's potentially on the chopping block. Right. So let me just give some overarching infrastructure. So again, there's two things that Fed is, is responsible for, monetary policy and regulations. So in the regulations area, there are four specific things that people think uh, where regulators and the Federal Reserve in particular have gone too far. The first as you said, is the Volcker Rule. The Volcker Rule, it says that banks, and these are principally for your banks with Wall Street operations, banks should not be allowed to proprietary trade, to basically act as hedge funds, to buy and sell securities, to buy and sell derivatives uh, for the bank's own account. 
But here's what the important thing, and, and so you know, this is something that you know, Citigroup did, J.P. Morgan Chase did, and basically all the banks did before the financial crisis. And they're, they're trying to get that risk out of banks because remember, banks you, to, to, to make trades like that, uh, to buy assets, to make loans, the money that banks use to do that are federally insured, in large, in no small part, federally insured deposits. So the thought is that why should federally insured deposits be you're backing proprietary trading, right? Sure. So, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the banks to stop doing that. Well, the problem is that the big banks on Wall Street are called universal banks. So they have both traditional, they have both commercial banking operations and investment banking operations. And they play a really important part or role in the capital markets. So you have like an insurance company or a university endowment or you know, a state pension fund, whatever it is, and it needs to go out with the money that it collects and buy assets, buy and sell assets in order to fund their liabilities that they have to pay out in the future. Well, in order to buy and sell, you need help buying and selling those assets. You can't just go to like Target or Walmart. I mean, I suppose you could try, but you're not gonna have a lot of success. You can't just go there and buy these things. So what you do is you go to these big universal banks to buy these things. And in order for these banks to buy these things, they need to buy them from somebody else taken onto the own bank's balance sheet, and then they'll sell that asset to the person who needs it, or the institution that needs it. And that's called market making. Well, the problem is that in that market making process, when, when a bank buys an asset from somebody else, holds on to the balance sheet temporarily, and then sells to somebody else, it's taking on risk. And the question is, it, it, that can look very much like proprietary trading. It, 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 it's very difficult to determine between proprietary trading and market making. So the problem there is that in, in order to explain to regulators that they're not proprietary trading, but they are in fact market making, there, it requires an enormous amount of paperwork, an enormous amount of bureaucracy, and an enormous amount of expense. So the thought process is, and this is kind of in the Warsh camp, is to tailor back the Volk rule, to make it less burdensome on banks but it'll still stop them from, you know, for large part, proprietary trading, but allow them to uh, serve as market makers in a less uh, encumbered uh, fashion. Right. Um, <clears throat> and, yeah, as, as you pointed out, that's definitely a big concern, particularly in the Warsh camp. Uh, and for, and when, John, when you're saying, you know, a lot of people are feeling this way, it's very much the banking industry is feeling this way and the analysts who are, who are covering it. So I think that's right. something we always have to keep in mind. You know, usually people do want things to be better for their particular area of things. Um, so on the flip side will be kind of what the, uh, serves the public interest. But, you know, you make a good point about, you know, just in terms of the, the difficulty of kind of telling the difference between market making and proprietary trading. And I think um, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that develops. Thanks to Audible for supporting our podcast. The Motley Fool is based in Northern Virginia, and frankly, traffic here is a fact of life. Audible makes traffic an escape you look forward to. In your car, you can access an unbeatable selection of bestsellers, mysteries, thrillers, and nonfiction. Transform your commute. Ride with Audible. So I've been listening to Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. Um, it's on Audible. It's it's about being who you are and, and focusing on personal authenticity. And it's a lot about the vulnerability tied to braving uncertainty and criticism. And if you've read any, or listened to, for that matter, any of Brene Brown's books, you'll know a lot of them really focus on that and, and on sort of braving that vulnerability and, and finding a path forward and really living into your true self. I'll say, as someone who podcasts, I'm particularly aware of that vulnerability of sort of putting yourself out there, because I experience that every time I get in front of a mic. Another thing that I really like about listening to Braving the Wilderness on Audible is that it's narrated by the author. Uh, I think that's a real plus. E even though there are people who are professional 
book readers, and, and they do really an excellent job. I think there's something special about the person who wrote the book reading the words that they've written and sort of placing the emphases where they do. So that's my two cents on it. Anyway, the important thing here is that if you go to audible.com fool, you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial as a thank you to our listeners for trying out Audible. Again, that's audible.com fool. Let's hop on over to stress tests. Now, this is something that has been in the news a lot more, I think, than, say, the Volcker Rule. So it's probably something people are a little bit more familiar with. Um, but this is very much um, an issue, and, and not so much because banks don't or are at least are not arguing for getting rid of the stress test, but they basically want to understand how the test is being administered and sort of what the inputs are so they can better adhere to what the Fed wants. That's right. So the stress test, basically every year, the Federal Reserve puts out a list of like 30 things that happen in a hypothetical economy. And they're like horrible things. Like employment goes up to like 10%. Asset price, you know, house prices fall 25%. Commercial real estate prices fall, whatever it is, 30%. Right, and then the question is, the, then what banks do is they come in and they try to figure out what's going to happen to their balance sheet in that situation. Are they, they going to go broke? Are they going to have enough capital to make it through, et cetera, et cetera? Well, banks actually, most bankers are very much in agreement with the importance of the stress test and that it's a valuable exercise. Their problem is that they say, look, the Federal Reserve doesn't t- release the specifics of its models that it uses to see how these. Uh, the hypothetical economic situations are going to actually impact the bank balance sheets. And the banks are saying, is like, look, if you're going to expect us to go through this test, then at least tell us how you're going to grade us. So then it'll allow us to perform better on it because when you release the results of these stress tests, that impacts our credibility, that impacts our reputation, uh, that impacts how you know investors and, and, and other business people think about banks. Uh, so they're just looking for more transparency. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I think that makes a lot of sense. Let's turn to capital returns. So currently, for the big banks, and it's the 50 billion plus assets, the Fed can basically say, oh, that's really nice that you want to pay a dividend. Tough. (laughs) You don't get a chance to do that. And uh, same with share buybacks. And they basically get to decide whether, whether and what banks can do in terms of trying to do some of those capital returns. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about that, both from, I think, the banks themselves and also investors, in terms of wanting to be able to chart their own course there. Yeah, I mean, can you think of any other industry where, and I'm asking this genuinely, can you think of any other industry where the regulators tell the companies how they, how much they can pay in dividends or how much they can stock they can buy back? Can you? Uh, no, none, none come to mind. Yeah, and so it's like this interesting idea. So if you believe that the market... It provides the most optimal outcome as opposed to kind of a controlled situation, then you would be dramatically opposed, right, to this idea that the capital banks, how, how banks handle their capital is being totally dictated in, you know, by, the, by the Federal Reserve. And so that, that is a major argument that is, I think, is a very valid argument. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to it. Um, but it is that, that power, that veto power of the Federal Reserve has become a very unpopular, as you can imagine, uh, power <laughs> among uh, banks and bank executives. Yeah, and probably investors, too. With, exactly. that, with that in mind, actually, industry-focused listeners, what do you think? Do you think that the Fed should have veto power over how banks uh, distribute dividends and stock buybacks? Send us your opinion, industryfocus at fool.com. And while you're at it, if you 
have a viewpoint on another industry that you think should be regulated that way, we'd love to hear it too. Again, industryfocusedfool.com. We read every uh, email that we get from listeners, and frankly, we pretty much personally answer all of them too, at least all the ones that we can. So I would love to hear from you. I know John would too. So drop us a note, industryfocusedfool.com. With that in mind, number four, growth thresholds. Now, this is an interesting one because it, you know, a lot of people talk about taxes and they say, oh, you know, if you if you're about to go up a tax bracket, you know, you want to keep your income below that because, you know, then suddenly you're going to be taxed more. And and what I think people forget is the way the tax brackets work is if you're, and I'm making up this number, if you have, you know, $80,000 of income at the 15% bracket and then you go to 81,000, so you pop up into the 25% bracket, what actually happens is you're taxed 15% on that lower amount and then the 25% only on the higher amounts. There's never, at least from a strict tax standpoint, a disincentive to make more money. And I think people forget that a lot of the time. That said, on the bank side, there's absolutely a disincentive to get beyond a certain size. Those growth thresholds are, I think, 10 billion, 50, and 250 billion. Yeah, and if you go back in time to the financial crisis and you think, like, what was the big rallying cry against the bank? It was this too big to fail thing, right? Right. And so you had these huge banks, Citigroup, Bank of America in particular, that ran into trouble. But if you let them fail, I mean, like, bad news bears, okay? Bad news, Citigroup, Bank of America fail, bad news bear for the economy. Big time bad news. Potentially transforms it from a recession into a depression, okay? So that's, that's, that's kind of the underlying thing here. So what the what the Dodd Frank Act did and regulators have done since then is they've put in these targets uh, at these different size levels for banks at 10 billion, 50 billion, 250 billion, that each time, <clears throat> excuse me, a bank passes that, their regulatory burden gets uh, stiffer, uh, more expensive, harder to meet. Uh, and what researchers have found is that this is completely these thresholds completely distorted the growth patterns in the bank industry. And what they found is that at the $10 billion threshold, and this is $10 billion in assets on a bank's balance sheet, okay? At the $10 billion threshold, what they found is that banks accelerate their growth rate through that. They make bigger acquisitions of other banks. They do more acquisitions of other banks to, in order to accelerate through that, to give them the economies of scale that is needed in order to then absorb those additional costs of being a larger bank. But then here's the thing. The $50 billion threshold so the, 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 that's at w- the point at which then banks have to start participating in that public stress testing process. And all of these other things happen at that, at, at that threshold too. Well, that threshold has become almost an impenetrable barrier for growth in the bank industry. Only one bank has passed it since the financial crisis, CIT Group, uh, with, with its purchase of One West. And One West uh, traces its roots back to a bank that was a major bank in, in the California area that failed during the financial crisis. Well, it passed it, but then it's been just doing horrible ever since. But there's, I guess I shouldn't say horrible ever since, it's, it has struggled ever since to, sure. to try, kind of rationalize its business model. Well, there's another bank that tried to pass it. We've talked about this bank on this show, and I, we've written a lot about it at The Motley Fool. It's called New York Community Bank Corps. New York Community Bank Corps forever has paid out something like 90% of its dividends, uh, uh, 90% of its earnings and dividends. And it's just, ever since it went public in the mid-1990s, it's just been an incredibly successful company. It's one of the top performing bank stocks over that time period. Well, it was at like $44, $45 billion in assets. And it stopped, it literally stopped growing organically so it wouldn't hit that $50 billion threshold. So as opposed to taking, it would be selling assets off its balance sheet so it didn't cross that threshold and then have all these additional costs. 
Well, then when it did try to pass that threshold with a large acquisition, it had to do all these different things in order to kind of um, come into consonance with what the regulators were looking for from a larger bank. And one of the things it did is it cut its dividend in a third, by a third. So it totally changed the growth, it, so it totally changed the investment dynamics of this bank. But then the problem is that that deal didn't go through. They just, the regulators were taking too long to get that deal to go through. So the, the two banks then split apart. So ever since then, so you have this bank that's performed so well for so long and predicated in part on paying out 90, you know, 70, 80, 90% of its earnings each year and dividends to its shareholder that cut its dividends all, all, all this by, by a third, that invested all this money in, 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 in to meet its added compliance burden, but yet wasn't allowed to pass that threshold. So you have, what we're seeing is this extreme distortion in growth in the bank industry right now. And, and again, to your point earlier, you know, people outside the industry, um, I don't know how much of an opinion they would have on some, on some technicality like this, but people inside the industry, and I would say even industry observers, uh, are all in agreement that um, growth thresholds like that are not necessarily the healthiest way um, to govern that or to deal with that too big to fail uh, issue. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, no, thanks for that commentary there, John. That's a, that's a good background. That's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments? You can always reach us at industryfocus at full.com or tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For John Maxfield, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>